Jesse Douglas Smith McGraw, and this is What Moves You with Jesse. I'm a transformative coach on a mission to share an understanding of how our minds work that challenges how we react to life and our thoughts. I love to share stories and common sense ideas that empower you to take charge of yourself in a way that brings immediate and profound change. What I know to be true is that we are all innately healthy and doing our best with the thinking we have available to us on a moment-to-moment basis. And waking up to this will change what moves you. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to What Moves You with Jesse. I am so thrilled to share with you the fantastic guest I have on the podcast today. Dr. Melanie Lundquist is a philanthropist and just a solid gold human being. And frankly, it was an honor to have the opportunity to take a deep dive into her world and her perspective on where we are as a society today and what she sees is possible. Um, It feels a little bit like we're going on a field trip together (laughs) Uh, because she is such a unique and fantastic individual that we get to take a deep dive with together. Let me share a bit about her before we jump into the conversation. So Dr. Melanie Lundquist, LHD, is an activist philanthropist whose voice is as fearless as her life-changing work. Boy, howdy, you will hear it. (laughs) Melanie and her husband, Richard, are agents of change and two of California's most significant philanthropists, having pledged more than $400 million over the last decade to support various education and cultural initiatives and healthcare efforts, almost all in California, which they have called home their whole lives. They are co-founders of the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, a sustainable national transformation model for underserved non-charter K-12 public schools. They also pursue innovative solutions to climate change in their philanthropy as the second largest donors to Altice at the Port of Los Angeles, the largest ocean cleantech incubator in the nation, where Melanie sits on the board of trustees. Recently, Melanie and Richard made a $10 million pledge to the News Literacy Project, the country's largest provider of news literacy education. Melanie and Richard are two of California's most significant philanthropists. They have appeared five times on the Philanthropy 50, the annual list of America's 50 most generous philanthropists, and are signatories of the Giving Pledge, the movement where some of the U.S.'s wealthiest individuals and couples commit to give more than half their wealth away. Melanie has always had the passion to help others and earned undergraduate and graduate degrees from USC in communicative disorders, speech pathology, and audiology, as well as a credential as a specialist in special education. Without further ado, here is Dr. Melanie Lundquist. So here we are with Dr. Melanie Lundquist. Melanie, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it is um, truly an honor after, you know, you and I have had a conversation, uh, one secret conversation away from the audience. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that was really exciting for me to get to know you a little bit more and to just get a taste of what this hour is going to be like. And I can tell everybody right now that it is going to be very educational, very inspiring, and very motivating, I think for sure. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So Melanie, do you mind, can we start at the beginning? I would love to know a little bit about your background as far as 
were you were you born into this this wealth that you now so freely give away or where where start at the beginning give us a little bit of a, a look that's, in- that's a great question because no i was not born into this wealth actually i grew up relatively poor and um uh, i'm also only the second generation born in this country on my mother's side of the family and third generation angelino on my father's side second generation born in this country and my mother's side. And I think the closer you are to your immigrant roots, um, the more you have a feel for some responsibility to put back, give back. And I think that's why I became a change agent. Um, I understand that the systems that we have in every way, shape and form are broken and that we have to develop a very deep understanding of the issues so that we can try and figure out how to fix these things. Um, um, We need to build from the ground up. And so we have to acknowledge that the systems are broken. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. And so we have to acknowledge that. And like I said, got to build them back from the ground up. Um, I like to think creatively. Uh, I believe there's no such thing as problems, only solutions. But it takes creativity to come up with solutions to fix broken systems. Um, Status quo won't fix anything. And um, uh, I think that's a problem. So Yes. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by status quo. I love that because I actually mentioned that a little bit on the podcast when I'm sharing about how we can get up and get caught up into these kind of conditioned ideas around what normal is. And then Mm -hmm. that kind of boxes us in. And of course, I'm speaking more from a personal experience of life for people when they're, you know, not on to how much uh, uh, thought they're living in that looks like reality. (laughs) Right, right. So from your perspective, looking at things in a much more objective Mm -hmm. view of all of our systems, uh, tell us what you mean by status quo and how that can get in our way. Uh, What I mean by status quo is um, looking at philanthropy through the lens of our society 30, 40, 50 years ago. What we did then doesn't work now. And I think people are just so, um, think it's so complex. And I think it's very off-putting to them. And so they kind of just, I call it repeat, recycle, recycle, repeat. Didn't work the first time, do it again. Didn't work the second time, do it again. No. And I think we have to look at this in a much more simplistic way manner because i think sometimes the solutions are really right under our nose but we're busy making it so complex that we don't see what's right there yes oh i've got 10 questions that just popped up but why don't you finish that thought so so do you have uh do you have kind of a an example off the top of your head by chance of something that we could kind of kind of grasp that you mean Um, sure. Um, I think that in today's world, um, we have siloed. We're all siloed. When I was growing up, um, everything was done collaboratively. And collaboration leads to much more efficient, effective work and getting it done. And it gives us thought partners. And that's how we discover the best solutions is thinking it through with other people. Like I said, in a more simplistic manner. And people say, well, you can't do that. These are very complex problems. You've got to think of it and break it down more simplistically. But the fact that we all live in silos and nobody collaborates with anybody anymore, I think is a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, before I'm going to, I'm going to take us further down that road in a moment. But first, I would love for you to tell us what your definition of philanthropy is through your eyes. Oh, that's a wonderful question. 
I'll give you Webster's um, definition, which is the love of humanity. Oh. And um, I think some people's definition of philanthropy is tax deduction. Uh, no, it's the love of humanity. Oh. And that's how I think about it. And I think Warren Buffett is, is um, his philosophy is something we kind of live by. It's not our money. It's society's money. We've been the temporary stewards. Fortunately, we've done well with it. Now it goes back to society for the benefit of everybody. Because as somebody once told me, they've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You cannot take it with you. So, and, you know, some people want to just leave it in a state plan after they've, they've left the face of this earth. The true joy that it brings you is irreplaceable. There is nothing that can bring you as much joy as philanthropy. It's the best journey of my life. And I've always said, if I could, I would give away my last penny with my last breath. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I feel like maybe maybe life will allow that to happen for you. Because oh, thank you. Thank you. It would be a tremendous <laughs> gift. It would be a tremendous gift. Yes. And I really, really deeply appreciate you sharing. And isn't it interesting that you went to Webster's, which is there it is. It's simple right under our noses. See, simplicity. <laughs> Once again, simplicity. And it's so, and to me, that is so speaks to exactly what I said at the top of this, that this is going to be or is such an inspiring conversation because it means by definition that you don't have to have millions of dollars to be able to give back to humanity. Every philanthropic dollar is as good as the next. I don't care if it's one single dollar, if it's accompanied by 99 other dollars or 99,999 other dollars. Every single philanthropic dollar is as good as the rest. And time also counts and showing interest in others who may be less fortunate than you are and going to the most vulnerable in our society. It's a privilege to be able to help lift people up. It's truly a privilege. And I don't take that for granted. Yes. Yes. Can you share a little bit about what you were doing before you started doing philanthropic, excuse me, philanthropic work? Well, I, I had several careers. Um, uh, educationally, my background, I have an undergraduate and graduate degree from USC in um, uh, communicative disorders, speech pathology, and audiology, which are medically related fields. I also hold a credential as a specialist in special education. Um, um, our company is a real estate development company that we own and um, I do some work with them. Um, I, I, I pick and choose my projects. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't have to sign on to all of them, which is great. So I pick and choose. I pick the ones I really want. And I, I like to pick the ones in San Francisco because I love San Francisco. So I get to head up there and work up there. And it's like, everyone says, well, do you get out of the, you know, the properties or anything? I go, well, no, not really. And they say, well, that's no fun. I go, oh, no, it, it's fine by me. I just love being in the city. It's fine. Yes, I love that. I love And that. Um, the other thing, I've always been my whole life, even when I was a teenager, I was a candy striper at one of the hospitals. I've always been a, a volunteer on whatever level I could afford to be, whether it was my time or whether it was a small amount of money or no money but time. Um, that's what I did. I love it. I love hearing what you were up to before kind of entering this chapter of your life because uh it really shows gives us a gives us more of an illustration of who you are on the inside too. It makes well, a lot and, of sense. And the other thing I'll tell you is that um I always followed um philanthropists. Even when I was a little kid and I was poor, I followed philanthropists. 
And one of them that I followed as I got older was Wallace Annenberg. And Wallace really opened my eyes and my heart to the inner city, the plight of our inner city kids. And that has been a big influence on me. Wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to hear. And of course, when you say follow from, you know, before the internet and social media days, that means you were really paying attention. That to means I was really paying attention. And, yeah. Buffy Chandler is another one. You know, um, somebody compared me. This is one of the best compliments I ever had in my life. Someone compared me to Buffy Chandler. And I said, why? And they said, because you have the civic mindedness that she had. And she was another one that I was always aware of because I'd read the view section of the LA Times, which when I was growing up, that view section detailed all the fundraisers going on and all the organizations and what they were doing. And I would read that cover to cover. And so I always was aware of what Buffy was doing as well and um, her civic mindedness. And my mother, my mother, uh, she started college in 1929 or 25, graduated in 29 from USC. And um, like I said earlier, you know, she she just had she had a tremendous sense of civic responsibility um, so she did the census every every time it came up. She worked the polls for every election. And, you know, I mean, it just was. And I think that's, again, part of being she was first generation born in this country. Yes. Yes. You mentioned something to me and I'm uh, then we're going to get into more nitty gritty of what you're up to. But you mentioned something to me on the call that I think is really powerful, and I've already shared it with multiple people over dinner conversations. So it really oh, touched it really touched my heart. <laughs> you mentioned a really fantastic idea that we used to have a draft, but now instead of a draft, maybe you know people could use that for military purposes. But you said there's a you have a fantastic idea for a two year commitment that people could make to this country. Many countries throughout the world, particularly the industrialized countries, do have requirements for their youth. And in this country, it was military related. And then that was dropped, which I completely understand. Yes. Um, but we didn't put anything in its place. And as a result, um, I don't believe that people feel that they are the stakeholders that they should feel like they are and should be in this country. And I don't care if it's the Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, City Year, the military. It can be whatever you want. Go out and pick up trash on the freeways for two years. I don't care. Whatever you want. But it, I think it automatically um, makes you a, a much different stakeholder than if you don't do that. Yes. I mean, it was so, when you, when you said it, I thought, geez, again, simple right under our noses because it immediately makes it, it, it immediately injected even the feelings in me of, well, of course, because now I'm connected to my community in a much different and deeper way, mm -hmm. but, you know, you know, as by nature, the, with what I do with my work, I feel like I'm, I'm, being able to give back to humanity and open their eyes in certain ways. But Correct. this was so, this was such a wonderful practical and pragmatic way that we, that people could feel connected to. I just, I love the way you say it. it's just being a stakeholder to their community and to their country. And, uh, and it doesn't have to be that you potentially lose mm -hmm. your life for it with being a military draft. Well, you know, I drew I grew up in the JFK John Kennedy era and it was ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country. Yeah. You know, once again, it's pretty succinct and it's pretty simple. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um share more about I'd love to go in the direction of um let me pause here. I just had sure. five different ideas come. <laughs> uh, why don't we go? Yeah. How do you, this is, okay, here we go. How do you know 
where to put your focus and where mm-hmm. to put your your next actions. Do you mm-hmm. follow do you follow kind of an internal nudge mixed with you looking at what's going on in in front of you or what is what's the what's the alchemy of yes. You know you, you, you know got that. it. You got yes. it. It's all it's all of that. Um we look to the most vulnerable and most overlooked populations. But we also look to this systemic change that I alluded to earlier. Um, I call it new age philanthropy because it addresses systemic change. I think that in many ways, philanthropy can be looked at as something that the way it's practiced today by many people is representative society as it existed 30, 40, 50 years ago, not as it exists today. And um, um, so we look at the most um, um, the most vulnerable populations. In fact, you know, when you interviewed Tom yes. from Homeboy, yes. love this book. Yes, the um, way she's talking about. Yep. Yeah. When you interviewed him, I mean, that is a perfect example. We support Homeboy because it's one of the most at-risk, vulnerable populations we have that it seems like nobody wants to deal with. You know, we go where the where people would consider, even though I've talked about simplicity, we tend to go um, to the most challenging issues. Yeah. And we make big bets. If we couldn't make big bets, we would still be doing the work. It would just be harder because I'd have to go out and find the money too. Fortunately, we have the funds to make the big bets. But I will tell you, the big bets, they're the most rewarding. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is a thought process of the most vulnerable And I find that the things we do are not the things that most philanthropists really want to work towards um, because it's so challenging. And the other thing we do in philanthropy that I don't agree with is people make a two, three year investment, a bet. And you know what? We've been breaking everything for about the last 50 years. I graduated high school, oh my gosh, 55 years ago. And for the last 50, I think I've watched it all break, everything. And as a result, you're not fixing it in two, three, five, or even 10. And that's why our first commitment to the partnership was a $50 million commitment for 10 years. The second commitment was a $35 million uh, commitment for a second 10 years. Um, and I I really believe that philanthropists need to think about making more long-term bets. Doesn't mean that you need to put more metrics in place to measure what's going on. Yes. And before we did the second 10-year bet for the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, I had them do an independent study of what we have accomplished in the first 10 years. And I told them, I'm not going to commit to a second 10 years till you've done that. I mean, I knew it was going to be good. So I wasn't worried. And I knew we were going to be able to make that second commitment. And there will probably be a third. I might be a hundred, but oh, well, it keeps me young, you know. Um, but um, it, it does amount to staying the course slow and steady gets it done. And while we need all of the short-term commitments as well, and they are extremely valuable and we cannot underestimate those short-term commitments, we need more philanthropists going towards those long-term commitments. Yes. Yes. Can you share a little bit of what you meant by, um, how it's been broken since about five years past your, your high school graduation. What do you mean by it's the, are you talking about the systems are broken or share? Yes. Yes. Like education. I mean, 
when I was when I, I went through LAUSD, four generations of my family were educated in LAUSD. I got a phenomenal education, phenomenal education. When I went to college, several of my college professors would look at, you know, essays I had written and things like that and say, oh, my God, what private school did you go to in Europe? You really know how to write. No, I went to LAUSD, folks. And now, you know, the arts have been taken out of education, and we know that the neural pathways that you lay down in your brain as a very, very young child doing arts, music, dance, painting, whatever, sketching, are the same neural pathways that we use for um, um, uh, science and math. Yes. Oh, and then we're no longer number one in science and math in the world anymore. We're way, way, way down the list. Why is that? Well, we got rid of it. And the other thing is our teacher training is really not good in this country. And I know some universities are not going to be happy with me for saying that. And I don't really care because it's true. Our, I mean, the number of teachers that come into our schools that are new teachers and I get a phone call from them. We're not, we weren't prepared to do this. This is far different than what we thought. So, you know, I think that um, uh, the, the teacher training is not good. The, the professional development in the schools is, oh, it's about a tenth of what it was when I was growing up. Wow. And so you just don't have any of that anymore. Yes. And it just means that it gets worse and worse. The teachers don't have the resource. You know, all these teachers, they take money out of their own pockets to buy paper and pencils for their classrooms. Really? The richest country on the face of this earth and our teachers who are not paid what they should be are taking money out of their own pockets to buy pencils and paper? I mean, and I don't, I really think that most people are completely unaware of these things. And it's, I'm so glad you, you know, I'm here with you this yeah. morning because this is what you do. You shed light on these issues and that's what we need. Yes. Because people don't really have a clue. Yes, yes, yes. I just, okay. First I'll say your 10 year commitments that you just spoke about that is with LAUSD, isn't it? It's the partnership for Los Angeles schools, which is a nonprofit entity that we co-founded with then mayor Antonio Villaragosa nice. in 2007. Yes. And we operate, we have 20 schools that we operate on, on an, uh, the basis of a memorandum of understanding an MOU. It's renewed every five years, and it was just renewed uh, unanimously, and it was on consent calendar. It wasn't even discussed because it gives us it, it, the partnership has become a really strong influencer in LAUSD. We're like a giant lab. Um, uh, one of the things is that um, philanthropists, you know, it's private money. And so they can be bigger risk takers. And the partnership is like a giant lab inside. You can't change a system unless you work inside the system. We are not a charter school organization for that reason. Right. Bless the charter school organizations, but we it's not going to happen that way. You have to work from the bottom up and the inside out. And the others work from the outside in and the top down. And it doesn't work. And so we have become a substantial influencer. So everything we try, the district can look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. And the other thing is, we know that it has to be scalable and it has to be sustainable. So it can't cost a gazillion dollars. So not only do the solutions we come up with, you know, have to be looked at a little more simplistically, but they also have to be looked at through the eye of the cost. And we're only spending like 850 some dollars per student per year. And what we've managed to do is uh, in the 16 years, 
Uh, we've increased our graduation rates from 36% to 87%. Wow. Our college acceptances have tripled. And here's a really good one that the district did adopt, actually. They've, adop they've actually adopted quite a bit of what we're doing. But when we started in the schools, the suspension rates were 21%. Well, now we all know if you're not there in school and you've been suspended, you're not going to learn anything. Yep. And they are now less than 1%. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everyone listening, I'm sure we're all having a round of, of applause. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really amazing what can be done when you really look at what's going on and you look at the policies and, you know, you just... The other, the other thing that I'm so proud, I'm so proud of so many things that have happened with the partnership. And one of the other things is um, we were having a staff meeting and somebody said, when do you think it's the last time that our kids in our schools were tested for the gifted program? Because without being identified, you don't get the services. It's that simple. And I looked at them like, how about never? Because the parents have to come in the office and they have to insist their kids are tested. A lot of our parents are not equipped with those advocacy skills. Yes. And it's hard for them. And the other route is teacher um, referrals. And in the, the higher poverty schools, you know, some people have this thing that zip code equals destiny. And if you're poor, you're not going to make it. So we decided, well, first time that is acceptable to test is second grade. We had at that time, we had about uh, 390 some second graders and we tested them. The average in the district was 10%, a little more maybe, 10 to 11%. The first year we tested, we found 13%. And the second year, we found 14%. Wow. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Just because they're poor doesn't mean they're not smart. Absolutely. I mean, and our kids are, I, one of our kids that I've become very close to, um, he went to uh, Harvard, graduated um, summa cum laude in um, engineering, and then went on to Stanford and earned an MBA. Wow. I mean, our kids are in the best places in this country. You know, because, you know, and um, going back to the second graders, when they when that became apparent to LAUSD, they were like, oh, we better be testing all second graders. And so they adopted that. Another thing they adopted, um, we have principals work year round. If you're going to try to take a school that is so underperforming, and our schools were all chosen from the least well-performing schools, they're in Watts, Boyle Heights, and South LA. And um, um, if you're going to choose in those schools, those schools in particular, then you you really need to be able. Um, to um, identify everything you can that is a help to these students because they're just, again, it's the most vulnerable population. They're overlooked because they're poor. Yes. Really? Well, I, I grew up, I didn't grow up as poor as they did, but I grew up relatively poor. I wasn't overlooked because in those days, and I'll, I mean, I'll give you a hint, I'm 74. So, and I said I graduated high school 55 years ago, but we, nobody was overlooked. Nobody was overlooked. Well, yeah. what does that tell you? That tells you we we're doing something right then that we're not doing now. So LAUSD adopted these things. And I started to say about the schools and the principals, none of the principals were working year round. They were off during the summer like the teachers. That doesn't work. If you're going to pull a school up, that principal has to be there during the summer planning yeah. and getting all the ducks in a row. And so, you know, we said, well, we're going to be paying the principals to work year round. 
Yes. The salary that they get is really, they can divide into 12 paychecks, but it's really a nine month salary. So now they have to be paid for 12. Well, the district said, geez, you know, this is probably a very good idea. And so in some of the more uh, vulnerable schools, the lower performing schools, they have principals working year round, just like we do. Wow, fantastic. So, so you're really looking at investing in such a way, having your money go, you know, trickle into all of these kind of nooks and crannies that feel like they help support all of the, all of the, I'm thinking of like the small muscles versus the big muscles. Yes, yes, yes. You know, like the yes. connective tissue. So you're right. really sitting in there on on a whole on a holistic level to help. Yes. Well, for one thing, and I think that this is one of my strengths, which leads me into this kind of work. I'm a very big picture person. Mm-hmm. I love to do jigsaw puzzles. Yes. And I want to know where all the pieces fit. And if I can't find where a piece fits, I'm not going to bed until I find it. Oh my gosh. Time, you know, it fell on the floor and I didn't notice it. And I'm sitting there for hours looking. I am so the same. You and I are cut from the same cloth. Yes. (laughs) But it's it is a matter of big picture. And that's again where the silos hurt us because people are in those silos. And let me tell you, those silos may be tall, but they're very narrow. And the way we're at in those silos today, we have no doors and no windows. We don't even know there's another silo two inches outside our silo. Wow. And it's really hurting society terribly. Yeah. I think because of the pandemic, and I'll, I'll say this because I think it gives a little bit more of a hopeful perspective, which sometimes it's hard for me to find those hopeful things. <laughs> but um, I do believe since the pandemic, I'm starting to see more people think we really should work together. We really should collaborate. So I'm seeing a little bit more of that. And that does make me feel better. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that is is inspiring. Because I thought to myself, when you shared at the beginning and you brought up the silo metaphor, You know, I know a lot of businesses because I've had a lot of conversations with business owners who want, you know, want to consider working with me. And a big complaint that's the through line between all of them is the fact that they are feeling like all of their employees are siloed because everybody's really kind of. Yes. Yes. So it's an interesting thing that kind of happened as far as people feeling really, um, you know, kind of loving the work from home and and not not coming into the office to be in together. Right? I don't really understand that personally. I, I I can't wrap my head around that because I think after being home, you know, after this going on for three years now, I would think that people are sick to death of being home and walking around in their pajamas all day. I know. But I guess not because I know people aren't wanting to come back. Yeah. But what's you know? interesting is I love what you're seeing on a, on a more kind of cultural mm-hmm. level as far as you know bigger bigger issues because i also have been seeing that so i love hearing your spot oh, good. yes and i don't know if it's because and maybe you can give me your two cents too there's a part of me that wonders because we went through so many kind of cultural uprisings during covid mm-hmm. you know on so many levels socially politically economically all of totally. it totally mm-hmm. right that I feel like that was kind of, I know it sat me down and made me really understand, get to understand a lot of things that I thought I understood before. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think that maybe that's part of it. Um, uh, what What do you suppose that? We're, I think, I think it? that's a big part of it. I think it made people reassess their values. Yes. Um, you know, we know that employers are having a very hard time finding, um, employees. Yes. And I think part of it is because we were so used to being out there, all of us chasing that rainbow, whatever that rainbow might've been. And I think this made us stop and think a little bit about what is really important. And I think the younger generations have figured out better than, than my generation did. It's not the material things. 
Yes. And I think that has allowed more people to reassess what um, their personal goals are for themselves, their families, and um, uh, what their role is in society. Yes. Beautifully said. I love that, that everybody was chasing their own personal rainbow until they kind of woke up to, wait a second, that leads right back to, you can't take the U-Haul behind the hearst. <laughs> That's right. No, it, it doesn't work that way, folks. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but it just doesn't work that way. Well, it's such a sobering and perfect example, a perfect metaphor, you know? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. It is. I would love for you to share, this feels like a great bridge into... Uh, you had talked to me a little bit on our pre-call about you coming from the greatest generation and, you know, oh, yes. and, you know, the impact of that on your generation. And then now how you're seeing what needs to be picked up moving forward. Can you share that kind of art? Sure. Well, my parents' generation was called the greatest generation by Tom Brokaw. And I did see Tom speak at a speaker series in the South Bay of Los Angeles. And I asked him, why are you calling it the greatest generation? Because I want to know what his definition was. And he said, the fact that they made every sacrifice they could think of to make in this world so that they could hand off a better world to their children because their parents had tried to hand a better world off to them. And then my generation came along and not only did we hand off a world not better than but not as good as, and a whole lot worse than what we were handed. And I have never figured out what in kind of internal dialogue my generation had with themselves that legitimized and made it okay what they did. You know, when I was growing up, even poor, um, pennies were squirreled away for college. Nobody in in my, you know, that in my um landscape had any college debt to pay for and then my generation i hear you know people my generation saying you know if, if i was talking about their kids college fund or something they'd say well no i'm buying a new bmw or a new a new mercedes my kid can get loans and just figure it out for themselves i'm not going to worry about it and um I, I've never understood that because then my generation turned around and they just flushed every sacrifice that our parents' generation made, the greatest generation. They flushed every single sacrifice down the toilet until there were none left to flush down the toilet. They are all gone now. Yeah. And I think this is so sad. And I think, you know, that that relates to this two years of service as well. If you are vested in your country and you are vested in how this all works, then you want to provide this. You want to leave your children a better world than what you were handed. And my generation just didn't do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they they had lots of um, my parents' generation. They endured the Great Depression. Um, you know, they endured world wars. They endured a lot of things. And um, they did not want their kids to have to endure those things. But I think, you know, it was like an overcorrection in a way. Yeah. You know, they they so spoiled their kids in some ways that it overcorrected. Yes. And yeah. so now we are where we are. Not a good place at all. Yes. It's interesting because of what just flashed inside of me as you were sharing kind of the um, really intense, uh, you know, experiences of life that that your parents' generation had. It's almost like, you know, there's there's got to be something to be said for the fact that we're kind of feeling a sense of this generation, my generation starting to kind of pick up, you know, mm -hmm. rise. It's interesting that that's happened post COVID or in the midst of COVID. Yes. I, and, and I, you know, I know when I'm out in our schools and I talk to some of the kids, 
I'm always apologizing to all the young people I meet for the how we've screwed up this world so badly for them. And they're like, I'm so sorry. And, and you know, their responses are unbelievable. They're like, don't worry, we'll fix it. It's okay. And I'm going, no, it's not okay. But they have such a great attitude about it. And they have an optimism um, about it. And that was even pre-COVID, but that was younger, you know, that was kids. Now I'm seeing more of this after uh, uh, post-COVID or post the worst of COVID with um, younger adults. Yeah. You know, saying, we'll fix this. We yes. can do this. And bless them for that. They shouldn't have to do it. I don't know why my generation doesn't feel the responsibility to clean up the mess. My mother taught me, you made a mess, you know, you got to go clean it up. It's your mess. You clean it up. But I don't know. I think it's just a lack of being vested in this country. Yeah. Yes. I agree with you. That's really, wow, really fascinating. So I am in the spirit of time of, as, as of course, this is exactly what I knew would happen that this hour would go so fast. <laughs> we have only talked about the one pillar of education that you donate to, but I would love for, I would love for you to share just a little bit. You have two more sure. pillars. I do (laughs) two more pillars and all the other things in between. But anyway, can you share a little bit more about what else you are really? Yes, absolutely. Well, going back to simplicity um, and um, saving democracy is the pillar. Uh, We are circling the drain. And I don't think people understand how really bad it is. So, um, we just this last year made a major investment. It's the biggest investment that News Literacy Project there out of D.C. It's the largest investment they've gotten so to date. It was $10 million. And um, um, the research that I did on this led me to News Literacy Project. They're uh, the nation's largest provider of news literacy education. They are in all 50 states because of their Checkology program. And it became clear that they have the best tools um, that we can hand the educators to use to develop the critical thinking um, skills that uh, our students need and that will enable them um, to win this fight. And uh, so that's why we made this significant investment. And I should also add, the philanthropy that we do, we're on the ground with it. You know, we don't just sit in an office and write our checks and bless the people that do. Those checks are really, really, really important. I'm not knocking those checks at all. Um, I love to be on the ground. And not because I think I have all the answers. I don't. But I enjoy the process, and I I really think that it's wonderful for the beneficiaries of what you do to see the, the face behind the check, because it says to them, you know, particularly like with our partnership as well, it says, we believe in you. And in fact, one of our schools, when we first started in um, our schools back in 08, uh, first day of school had gone to all of our, at that time, 10 schools. And then a month later, I went back and I went back to one of the schools and this young woman came up to me and said, do you remember me? And fortunately I did. And I said, yes, I actually do. And um, she said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? What am I doing here? And she said, well, nobody else ever comes back. What are you doing here? And it broke my heart. And I looked at her square in the eye and I said, try this one on. You're worth it. And, you know, that's the other thing is that you can express your belief. And our young people need, particularly our vulnerable young people. And I serve on the board of directors with NLP as well. Um, They have a very impressive board. It's current, former, nationally recognized print and broadcast journalists. And and it is nonpartisan, which I love. So there's former appointees from Republican Democratic administrations that are on that board. And we all work together. You know, we really can all work together. 
So, um, and Checkology, it's a virtual classroom uh, tool. It's free online platform to help our students and everybody else figure out how do you discern news from misinformation, disinformation, conspiracies. And it's in our middle and high schools. And uh, it's a very adaptable uh, curriculum. So it can be in English, social studies, history, government, STEM, journalism, whatever classes it can be woven into. And, um, um, you know, it demystifies how journalists do their work. It applies critical thinking so that they can evaluate and seek credible news, which is very hard to do today. Yes. Oh, my goodness. First and foremost, I think to myself, geez, even when I was in school, that wasn't that number one critical thinking wasn't necessary for the news. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, you know, just imagine when I was in school, there was, you know, no social media. That adds a whole new layer, several new layers, actually, to the whole problem and the whole process. Um, uh, And it makes it more challenging, but it's not impossible. Yeah, no, it's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. Yes, absolutely. And I just love the idea. I love that it's just, it fills me with a feeling of hope knowing that that's even turned into a leg of education. Because frankly, that's that's actually new to me. I really love it. Yeah, well, when I was going through LAUSD, we had civics every year first grade through 12th grade, you know, and then we know the arts got taken out, civics got taken out, all these things got taken out. And how's it working for us? Well, it's not. So think about it, you know? Yes. And um, I I think that um, uh, philanthropists could really go a long ways. uh, And many have, many really have um, towards um, enabling uh, the most vulnerable populations to succeed. Because, you know, when the majority doesn't succeed, in the end, nobody succeeds. We're only as strong as our weakest link. And boy, do we have the weak links. And we've designed those weak links. They didn't just happen by accident. We've designed them. Yes. And it's bad news. Yes, yes. I do have to say, you know, you started this last little bit by saying that you wanted to make sure that we knew that you were on the ground with people. Right. Melanie, you would never even have to say that. We can feel it. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> Truly. you. Truly. Yes. It's this the best is- part. You know, it's best journey I've ever taken, best journey in my life. And I absolutely love it. And, um, um, you know, philanthropy can even be seen a little bit as a selfish activity because you get so much more out of it than you ever put into it. And you don't know that until you do it, but you do, you get so much more out than you ever put in. And it's totally joyful, totally joyful. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. One of my final questions to you was going to actually say, what brings you joy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've been talking about it for an hour. We have, we have, you know, a lot of people think, well, gee, you know, you can sit in the spa every day and have lunch with your girlfriends every day. Why aren't you doing that instead of going out there and hitting your head against the wall? And I go, no, this is, this is what I love. It gives me the, the biggest amount of joy. And sadly enough, our country needs it. Yes. Yes, our country needs it. And I I really do want people to um, see a new way of practicing philanthropy that um, would be um, more big picture, going to the most vulnerable, Um, you know, even where we do have our names on buildings at our local hospital. And I don't think any, I don't know of another philanthropist who does it. I'm not saying this just to pat myself on the back, but our names on those buildings have a timeline, 20 to 25 years. They're not into perpetuity. No, thank you. No, because the only thing that a hospital or university has to sell 
our naming rights. And so if I tie them up into perpetuity, then what am I doing? I'm handicapping them. I'm tying their hands behind their backs. I'm putting a blindfold on them. You know, and I mentioned this frequently to people and people, well, no, I want it into perpetuity. And I know they do, but I don't think that's a fair thing to, to really do. And it was funny because when we announced a $50 million gift at our local hospital, and I said, anybody here or in the future who wants to pledge 50 plus $1, I will personally get the ladder out and take my name down off the building myself. <laughs> and I have a fear of height. So that was really saying something. But yeah. I would. And this one person, as we were walking back to our seats after announcing this, he said, I'm going to do this in 25 years. Well, hey, that's my I'm holding him to it, too. <laughs> I hope he remembers he said it, but he did. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So we've kind of touched on a little bit, but I would love for us to I have two more questions on, sure. on the here. Um, we've kind of touched on this, but can you share how you can see that from people of all different levels of of income and background, how they can be of service more to others? How how can people help that are that may not be in, in the same bracket that you are? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll give you a, an example. I, I talked to a friend yesterday and I said, she was in her car and I said, oh, where are you headed to? And she was headed to um, uh, read um, essays that had been written by students applying for scholarships because she has a lot of expertise in that. And, you know, more affluent families, well, we'll hire a resume writer for you, or we'll hire a ghost writer for you, or whatever. Wow. Um, but the vulnerable, more vulnerable populations and our, our poorer populations, they can't do that. And um, the other thing that she does also, which I just love, she helps prepare young people for job interviews. You know, job interviews are pretty intimidating. Yes. And if your mom or dad has not had that much experience, you can't go off of what they are have to say to you. So you need to come up with another type of um, um, uh, plan. And this plan of, of role playing and helping them develop their skills for um, job interviews. Um, I think is fantastic. Yes. So really, whatever lights somebody up, how can you then give that back? Yes. To and, and it does. And, you know, you brought up, a, that's a really good point, Jesse. And I haven't said it this whole hour. I can't believe I haven't. But I think, I guess I think it's fairly obvious. Um, passion. Yeah. You have to find your passion. And... Uh, and your and your your area of real confidence and expertise, and it doesn't have to cost penny one. Um, I know some other friends of mine; they take inner city kids to um, like USC's basketball games. Um, they mentor the kids. They'll spend one Saturday a month with the kids, uh, sometimes in group settings and sometimes individually. And mentoring them. Because I know when one of our kids from partnership schools was going to college, he called me and he said, oh, my gosh, I think everybody in my dorm has been to prep school. And he says, you know, he said, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I knew he was going to be fine, but he didn't know he was going to be fine. And that's all that counts. And so he said, um, are you OK if I call you? Um, because, you know, my parents haven't been to college, so I can't ask them for help when I run up against a problem. And I said, you can call me anytime. Well, he'd call me at 10 o'clock at night, California time, which, you know, back East was one in the morning. And then we'd stay on the phone for an hour to two hours, figuring out whatever needed to be figured out. I mean, you know, and so 
that costs nothing. We burned up the phone lines, but <laughs> that costs nothing to do. Yes. Yes. Wow. That really says something to me about you, about how you are really open to opportunity, open to the conversations that you have. You really allow yourself to get touched. And, and well, I, you're right. I do. And like, uh, for example, what I'm just starting the end of this month is our high schools. We have four high schools. And so the senior class, I, um, we pull out some of the kids that um, have already know where they're going to college. And I host a lunch for them on campus. And we just talk about, you know, because I have been to college, undergraduate and graduate. And even though I'm a whole lot older and what I experienced may be a little antiquated now, there are certain things that are just timeless. And they ask me some of the most interesting questions, you know, really. And the other thing that you can do for some of these kids, you know, particularly the kids that are leaving Southern California and going east, they need a warm pair of mittens and a warm scarf around their neck. Yeah. And a hat, because we lose most of our heat from our body through the top of our heads, folks. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's small things, but they make a huge difference. You know, if you ask these kids, well, do you own a coat? No, we live in Southern California. Of course, this winter has been really cold, but we live in Southern California. We don't need a coat. Well, yeah. you're going to absolutely freeze back there. I mean, particularly if you're going to like Northwestern, the Great Lakes. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. There's no place colder. Maybe no. Alaska. <laughs> but that's a great idea also. And thank you for that note on, on follow your passion. That's so important. So I have your final question that I, sure. that I finish every interview with. You can answer it however makes sense to you, whether it's spiritually, literally, practically, emotionally, whatever comes to you. Okay. And thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Oh, good. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> As my mom would say, which is what my grandmother would say, mutual admiration society. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yes. My mother used to say that too. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, Melanie. What moves you? Uh, the philanthropic work. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about. I mean, I uh, my parents, I think if they said it to me, if I heard it once, I heard it a million times. When you leave this world, it better be a better place for your having been here. And um, I feel like I have won the lottery getting to do this philanthropic work. I really think that's what it is. And um, seeing these kids graduate from Harvard and Chapman and Wellesleyan and Northwestern and Columbia and NYU and USC and UCLA and any of the UC campuses, that's, that is what moves me. You know, the greatest thing is too, I get to go to their graduations. Oh, <laughs> and it's so much fun. It yeah. really is. I, in fact, I had a student that I talked to last week. He's in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Art Institute, and he graduates May of 2024. And he's he's kind of a shy kid. And he said to me, he said, I have a question for you. And I said, yes. And I and he knows the kids. I tell him, you can ask me anything. And he said, if I sent you a ticket, would you come to my graduation? And I said, of course I will. <sighs> and he said, okay, I'm sending you a ticket. Mark it down on your calendar now. And I said, you got it. <sighs> and I will go. And, you know, when we go, his family, I don't know if they'll be there or not. But the day of graduation, I will host a celebratory dinner for whoever he has there. <sighs> Wow. You know, because it is quite a milestone for many of these kids. They are the first in their family to ever go to college. And that's why it's so important that they have people that can um, answer questions for them and just give them insight along the way. Absolutely. 
Well, I have had tears and I am going to jump off before I <laughs> fall into them again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed it immensely. Wonderful. Me too, Melanie. And I will likely be in touch again to have to have Good. your voice again, because it's just so inspiring. And I know that we only scratched the surface of who you are. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Take good care. Stay safe. You too. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to What Moves You with Jesse. Let's stay connected. You can find more ideas and strategies on being human on my Instagram, at What Moves You with Jesse. Sign up for my newsletter or learn more about working with me at WhatMovesYouWithJesse.com. And please rate and review the show. And let us know what you think and what resonated. I read every single review. They mean so much to me. You can also call in on our hotline with your thoughts on what resonated there too. It is always live at 818-646-JESS. That's 818-646-JESS. What Moves You with Jesse is produced by Mike McGraw and Tinker City Music. Now, let's take a deep breath and give ourselves permission to live in this moment for what truly moves you.